So this is one of the few of these psalms we've looked at that actually has a, a subscript after the title. This is, says a psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving. So we don't have to try to figure out what the theme is of this psalm. David, actually it, the author is unknown. Uh, the author tells us it's a psalm of thanksgiving. So that's clearly the big overarching picture here. We have a psalm of thanksgiving. And it begins, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Uh, could probably better translate it, all the earth. Um, all earth is called here to make a joyful shout. That's actually just one word in Hebrew. Um, more like maybe like a victory shout. A shout of celebration at an accomplished victory. A joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. And this kind of themes this whole chapter, which really is a call to the nations. Uh, this is, in a sense, something we've become a part of, but also something we're kind of calling on the nations to. So as we read this psalm, we're, in a sense, participating in it, but also praying it. We can kind of take it in both directions. And, and in this heading, this call to the nations, to um, Lord in caps there, as we've said every week, is the name of God, his personal name, Jehovah. This personal name, Jehovah, is who the people are called to shout to. A personal God. And that is something that's actually super unique in Christianity. Is that we have a God who's both absolute and personal. And you don't really find a God like that in any other religion. You either have a God that's absolute and powerful and almighty. But is not a friend. Is not um, one who loves you and I. Not a father. Or you have a God that's close and wants to be a part of your life. But is powerless against many of the darknesses and um, elements of evil in this world. So we have God who's absolute and personal, revealed to us by his name, Jehovah. Um, and one thing I would say about this too, we can also look at this psalm in its original setting, but also in how we could use it today. Because remember, the Holy Spirit wrote this not just for Israel at its time, but for us. So they're singing this originally before the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And that's a call but now that it, the gospel has come and Christ has come and is being proclaimed, this psalm in a sense takes a new expression as it were. Because when we are talking about Jehovah here, we could actually in many ways substitute the name of Jesus Christ in this whole psalm. Because Christ's name actually means Jehovah's salvation. And Christ is revealed as Jehovah in the Gospel of John, that when Isaiah saw God high and seated on the throne, he uses the name Jehovah and applies that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, just as the nations were called to praise God in Israel's time, so now, preeminently, God's name has been revealed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one whom we want to see the nations coming to worship. And so, here's what the nations are called to do. To first, um, after they shout of, shout of triumph, to serve the Lord with gladness. And that word gladness really is happiness, merriment, great joy. Uh, and to serve him. And the word serve is to labor for. And this is something that's so beautiful about Christianity is that as 1 John 5 says, God's commandments aren't burdensome. It's not a toil and a weight to serve God. Serving God is actually the way the weights get removed from us. And the burdens of serving vain idols, like living to serve your own lusts, living to please other people in your life only, that's a burdensome service. But living to serve 
and to please God is actually a liberating, life-giving service. And so we ought to serve God gladly, to serve him in joy. And even God's laws are given to us for our good and for our joy. Um, Even when you look in Deuteronomy 4, when God gives his laws to Israel, he says, I've given these laws, and what I expect to happen is that as the nations around you look at how I have governed you, they'll look at you and say, wow, what sort of nation has such wise laws, has such good laws, has such justice flowing in the nation? And so our life of glad obedience to God ought to be an incredibly attractive life. And if we live lives as Christians that seem morose or seem um, burdensome to others, uh, something's a bit off. You know, our service to God ought to bring a lot of joy and liberty in how we live for him and ought to be a witness to the goodness of our God and the kindness of our God. So to serve the Lord with gladness, uh, come before his presence with singing, uh, to come before Jehovah's face. Like we talked about last time, uh, to be in someone's face is to be in their presence. And to come in or to go in with singing or a ringing cry. And this is a call as we serve, part of that service is gathering to worship. We come together as we did this very day. We come together to serve the Lord, to come actually into the very presence of God. And we come with singing and praises and prayers and all these things. And... We come to verse 3 here. Beautiful verse, uh, looking at God's relationship to us. What are we supposed to think about and think of ourselves? It says, to know that the Lord, to know that Jehovah, he, he is God. That is, he's the one true God. And in a lot of the Psalms previously, there was a lot of talk of the idols of the nations. And the difference between serving the true God and serving idols. And this comes in that theme of, Know that Jehovah is God. He's the true God. He's the only God. He's the only God worthy of worship and service. Because every other idol, every other, every other thing you could live your life for is vain. And it's going to vanish like dust in the wind. And what are we supposed to know? It is that it is he who has made us or fashioned us. And not we ourselves. And we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Um, I think I, when I was studying this, I realized that I've often taken this verse too Christianly, you could say. I think of this as us, as the church. He's, um, he's made us as a creator, but now we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, which is true and gloriously true. But this seems to be keeping in view God's creation of the nations. So all the nations are supposed to know that the one true God is the creator, the one who made all things. And keeping in that same theme, just as God is the creator, it's also like everyone in the world is a part of God's flock in a general sense. We know we think of this in the churchly sense, but in a general sense, God is not just the creator, but he's also the governor of the world. God, by his providence, governs and organizes and upholds all things. So in that sense, you could say that everyone in the world is a part of the flock of God. Because in a general sense, all people are under his government. But this is much, much more true for us as Christians who have been actually brought into the flock of the good shepherd, who heard our shepherd's voice and have come into the flock. 
And we get to partake of that special government of Christ as part of his church, that special shepherding. Um, In Ezekiel, Jesus is prophesied as going to be the shepherd king or the shepherd prince in two different chapters. And that's like such a beautiful picture of both authority and rule, but tender care and provision. So seeing Jesus as our shepherd king is a really beautiful way to look at it in the church. And we're called to know this. This Hebrew verb know is used throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's the word yada. And this is always a relational knowing. This isn't just a bare mental knowing, but there's a deep knowledge associated here. This is even the term used for relations in marriage when Adam knew his wife. It's a deep, intimate connection. And so when we know that Jehovah is God, it's not just to think it in our minds, but to really have that as a settled reality in our hearts. That Jesus Christ is the one true God. Jesus Christ is the one whom God sent. He is the true way, the eternal life. And to really have that settled, and to have that settled knowledge is actually to be in relationship with him. It's to be known by him and to know him. Um, God making us and not we ourselves. And this really does go against what would be the prevalent ideology in our day of... Really, we're taught in America that we do fashion our identities. And we could call this existentialism or just human autonomy that you can be whatever you want to be and you fashion your identity to be whatever you wish. And the highest value in our culture, or at least among them, is authenticity. Are you being your authentic self? That is, are you expressing what's on the inside that the identity you've created on the outside. But if God's fashioned us, then he's given us particular identities and he's given us a particular way to image him. And we're called to grow in the image of Christ so that our true authentic self might be Christ shining out of us and not whatever authenticity comes from our corrupted hearts. Uh, So yeah, verse one to three, the call to the nations to come to know God. Anyone else have uh, thoughts or questions on that? I know I went for a little while. Lovely verses, eh? This is such a great psalm. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention that I think is really cool, this is a bit of a side thing, but um, recognizing, so this is calling, verse 3 is calling the nations to recognize God as their creator, and therefore their shepherd, or owner, or governor. And this is a really good way to approach unbelievers. This is how Paul approaches the Gentiles in Acts 17. Uh, He starts off saying, The Lord God who made the heavens and earth, he's not served by hands as though he needed anything. He gives life, breath to all men. He formed you. He chose where you would live. Um, So starting with just who God is and what is the basic start of the human story. And we forget that so many in our culture nowadays don't even know the basic story of Christianity. So we often have to go a couple steps back from where we think we need to start off explaining the gospel. And just start off with God is the creator. God created everything. God is powerful. God is good. And he's established you and I here that we might come to know him, to be in relationship with him. Because God has a right to own and to govern all people by virtue of being their creation. When you create something, you do have a vested right in it. And I was thinking, I really, I often have talked in the past about how as Christians, we get this double ownership by God, that God owns us by virtue of being our creator, 
but then he doubly owns us by virtue of being our redeemer. Uh, to redeem means to buy back. So Jesus Christ, having bought us from dominion to sin, also owns us as Lord, as the redeemer. So we're doubly owned, owned by virtue of creation and owned by virtue of redemption. But I miss the, I miss the Holy Spirit in this, and I'm wanting to be self-consciously more Trinitarian, and Richard Baxter rebuked me on this because we forget that, and I was forgetting that the Holy Spirit owns us as our sanctifier. And you might even think in your family, let's say um, if you have a pet and you bought like a pet for your kids, and maybe one particular child took a major interest and did all the care for this pet. And even though they technically didn't own it, you can't say, yeah, the dog is Julie's because really like Julie did everything for that dog, cared for it. Or if like, say, your dad had like an old beat up car, but you really took an interest in it and like fixed it up, got it all redone, uh, renovated it. It's like, this is kind of my car. I sunk so much work into it. And so I think in that way, the Holy Spirit exercises ownership in us as our sanctifier, our renovator, the one who applies gospel truth to our lives, who makes us daily into the image of Christ. So not just triple ownership, but I think we have um, double, triple ownership as Christians. The Father owns us as our creator. The Son owns us as our Lord and Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit owns us as our renovator and sanctifier. And so to think of ourselves in those three relations, I just think could be helpful to us in lots of ways. Does that make sense? Not pulling that out of thin air, you don't think? All right, good, good, good. Okay, uh, this is, the soul's kind of split in half. So we have verses one to three is kind of the call, and then verses four and five are the application, as it were. So when we recognize God's lordship, we recognize God's ownership, we see then the call to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. This is a clear allusion to the temple. Uh, the temple gates were entered into as people came to worship, and then the courts was actually where the people entered. So only the priests themselves could go into the actual temple. But the people, when they gathered for the sacrifices, were in the court, in the court surrounding either the tabernacle or later on the temple. And this was the area and arena of worship. And so this um, is a picture to us, I think, even as we come together in gospel worship, there's a sense in which we are entering in the doors and enter into the, the congregational, into the sanctuary. And so I think we can take this lesson here that we ought to come to worship uh, in a preparation of thanksgiving. Uh, the Puritans talked a lot about being prepared for public worship, um, almost like pre-warming the oven, as it were. And so to come just acknowledging, God, thank you that by your ownership of me, I can come and worship you. I do have a way and a right by Jesus Christ to come into your presence I have been gathered to be a part of a body. What an amazing, wonderful truth. So to come with thankfulness and then to be in his courts, to come into those courts with praise or a song of praise. And that is why we usually try to start our worship services with a song of praise. Uh, we start with a, a praise-ish call to worship, a praise song, a praising prayer, and another praising song. That's the usual way we do it here. Because we know that a praise is a fitting way to come before God. Thanksgiving is a fitting way to come before God. And it does show a heart that's joyfully focused on God and not on self. And praise clarifies everything else into the, into the perspective of God as king and us as his subjects.
uh, and to be then thankful to him. That's actually connected to bringing a thank offering or a sacrifice of praise, as we might see in Hebrews 13. To bless his name, that is to ascribe honor to him. Uh, This has actually a connotation of bowing. Just reverently saying, you are the one who's honorable, not I, Lord. And here's really the heart. Verse 5 is the heart of this psalm. And it's so beautiful. There's so much in here for us to focus on. That this is this form. This is the reason for all this praise. The reason for all this worship. The reason for giving all this honor to God. uh, For three particular qualities of him. For the Lord, for Jehovah, for Jesus Christ is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. The three great qualities of our God that just call us to praise him so wonderfully. Uh, Firstly, his goodness. That he is good in and of himself. Uh, God has no malice in his will. He has no evil in his intentions but is the giver of all good. He's the source of all good. He's perfectly good. Uh, Do you remember Jesus said to that guy that came to him, uh, no one's good but God alone. God alone is perfect goodness. And so we think of firstly who God is in himself. He is good enough himself. But then secondly, from that goodness flows his mercy or probably better his love or steadfast love is everlasting. And what is his love and mercy, but what is his goodness exercised towards us as the recipients of it? You don't show mercy unless there's someone actually to show mercy to. And so we can praise God for the goodness of himself, but also then his goodness to us. That he has shown us grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even grace upon grace, as John 1 says. And daily new mercies. Um, a covenant of love, that word mercy is that uh, Hebrew word chesed, that relational love, uh, faithful love, a love of relationship that stays with us forever. What an amazing thing to praise God for, that he's set his love upon us and will never take it away. And thirdly, not only is God good in himself and good to us, but unchangeably so. God will never become evil. He will never become unmerciful to the ones to whom he's shown mercy. And so when it says his truth, that word is actually more like faithfulness or firmness. His faithfulness endures to all generations. That is generation after generation to the end of history. Uh, His faithfulness, particularly his faithfulness to his promises, will never end. God will keep every promise that he's ever spoken. The promise for those who are in Christ. The promise of salvation to those who have trusted in Christ. The promise of heaven to those who have been found in Christ. He will be faithful to all his promises. Uh, And this is what uh, Moses, when God comes to Moses in the mount. And he says, I'll reveal my name to you. What is that name that he reveals? But the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Showing mercy to thousands, but also showing justice and punishing to generations. Use that generation language again of those who do not follow me. And if we recognize that God is full of mercy and justice, won't we want the nations to come in to not be objects of his wrath, but to become objects of his mercy, to give him the honor and glory due his name, to join in joyful praise and joyful service to the Lord. Um, 
Matthew Henry just said of this that knowledge is the mother of devotion and obedience. It's as we get to know God, to know who he is in in himself, to really know what he's done for us in Christ, to really know what he's going to do for us as he fulfills all his promises, the more that sinks into us and seeps in like water pouring upon a soil, the more we'll be fruitful in zeal for God, obedience towards God, devotion towards God. God is so good to us and has so much for us available in Jesus Christ. Uh, Why don't we just close with a few of us praying, just uh, of praise and thanksgiving. Um, If I could ask Andrew if you want to open, and maybe a couple people pray, and I'll close just, as we've looked at all these things of praise towards God, let's just praise him and delight in his, particularly these things, his goodness, love, and faithfulness. Let's pray. Amen.